And I think that is a very hopeful message that, you know, addressable audience is large. As long as we continue producing high quality, uncompromising storytelling, the demand will continue to grow. You're listening to FIP Unscripted, the podcast that chats to the big names in media about their passions, their opinions, and their personal experiences in this challenging industry. This podcast is brought to you by Pressreader, the world's largest digital newsstand. With Pressreader, publishers reach diverse audiences and monetize their content in new ways. Bring your publications to every corner of the globe, including at sea and in the air. Join Pressreader today. Hello and welcome to the fourth Media Unscripted. Today I am delighted to be talking to FIP's first ever female chair, Yulia Boyle. Yulia is Senior Vice President of International Media, Image Collection and Content Operations at National Geographic. Now, I know that Nat Geo really needs no introduction, but just in case you don't realise just how massive it is, it is one of the most widely read magazines of all time, with a total readership of around 43 million. In the last seven years alone, it has won seven National Magazine Awards, two Webby Media Company of the Year honours, and has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist three times. The publishing powerhouse now also has a podcast, TV channel, live events, and much more, and it's constantly evolving and developing its content to suit its broad audience and meet the demands of a constantly changing industry. Now, Yulia has been instrumental in launching Nat Geo magazines and books across 52 countries all around the globe. She's also passionate about encouraging diversity within the media, and this partly comes from her somewhat unconventional path into publishing. In this podcast, Yulia talks about coming of age in Soviet Armenia, where there was a war, a devastating earthquake, and then the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yet during this tumultuous time, Yulia decided to learn English, which just goes to show her drive and ambition. Yulia also talks to me about National Geographic's media strategy and how teaming up with Disney has been an exhilarating process, which she admitted has pushed her out of her comfort zone. However, it's also brought great new opportunities. Yulia also talks about the exciting possibilities of NFTs for publishing, as well as their potential pitfalls. And she tells us what she hopes to bring to FIP as its first female chair. So enough for me, let's get on with the interview. Yulia, thank you so much for joining us on Media Unscripted. It's really, really great to have you here. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm excited. So we've got lots of questions, haven't we? We've got lots and lots and lots to get through. So I'm going to crack on. I first of all, just really like you to tell our listeners exactly what your role is at National Geographic, what that involves. So I am Vice President of International Media, Image Collection and Content Operations for National Geographic. Essentially, I head the three groups. As a part of my international portfolio, I manage all of our local language editions and English local editions of National Geographic magazines, all our adult and kids magazines, special issues, collector's editions. And we have a total readership of Nat Geo, about 43 million globally with our domestic U.S. editions. Uh, But internationally, we are in about 28 languages, 52 countries, and we have 67 editions across all of our magazines. Wow. So it's a huge, it's, 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 I mean, that's a, that's a lot of scope. And you say dealing with 
three different areas there. Now, I know that you've been at Nat Geo for quite a number of years, about 15 years. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And so you've really kind of worked your way to the top. Can you tell me a bit about how you got a job there and about your background, how you came to work at Nat Geo? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, yeah, I'll tell a little bit about my personal story. So I'm a immigrant. I am an immigrant woman in the U.S. from Armenia with Armenian and Jewish heritage from my mother's side, the Jewish heritage, uh, raised by two strong women, my mother and grandmother, <laughs> and was coming of age in the Soviet Armenia, Soviet Union, essentially, which is Armenia is a landlocked country between Turkey, Georgia, Azerbaijan and Iran. And I was coming of age in a very tumultuous time for my country. There was a first war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 86, 94, kind of during my teenage years. Mm. Devastating earthquake that killed 35,000 people out of 3 million people who live in Armenia. And eventually the collapse of Soviet Union in 91, when I was just graduating from my high school, 92, I graduated. So as everything was collapsing around me, Uh, Not much to do, no electricity, no running water. I decided to learn English and here I am. But uh, seriously, uh, I guess I was uh, at the right place at the right time. Due to all of those calamities, I became one of the many beneficiaries of U.S. foreign aid and have gone to U.S. twice, actually, once Mm -hmm. at an age of 19 and a little later as a graduate student. And that was thanks to U.S. Senator Bill Bradley and Edmund Muskie, who actually were behind the Freedom Support Act bill that mm-hmm. uh, gave foreign aid to the former Soviet countries. And I got full ride and full scholarship to do both, well, some of my undergrad and my uh, graduate school as well. Sure. How did you get into publishing? Yeah, so I was actually traveling back from my undergrad. I was doing American studies in Rowan uh, University of New Jersey, and I met somebody on the plane who introduced me to managing director of Macmillan Education. Macmillan being a very esteemed British uh, educational Mm -hmm. publisher. uh, Mm -hmm. And I got a job with Macmillan, uh, helping them uh, start a joint venture in Armenia with a local publisher. So that was my uh, first sort of foray in publishing business. I started uh, with Macmillan doing everything from office management to editing the first ever Armenian English dictionary. And so what about getting into National Geographic? How did that happen? How did that come about? Um, I uh, went to graduate school. I took a break. I did public and environmental affairs at Indiana University. And then I went back to Macmillan, worked at Oxford and Basingstoke for them. And later on, uh, traveled around the world. I had different publishing jobs. I ended up in Ukraine uh, publishing Women's Weekly. Uh, It was sort of uh, repositioning an existing magazine uh, to do a professional women's weekly magazine, which was the pace Mm -hmm. of weekly was very challenging. Um, And after that, we relocated back to the U.S. after eight years of working abroad. We were in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia, uh, Georgia, Armenia, Ukraine, and then ended up in U.S. And I got a job uh, with National Geographic thanks to the publisher who I worked with uh, in Ukraine. So he introduced me to uh, several people and I started at the licensing group, International Licensing and Alliances, licensing Traveler magazine. At that time, we had six issues of Traveler. We almost quadrupled that to date. Uh, And of course, we are in many, many countries with all of our Mm, other magazines. mm. So that was the start of my uh, job and career at National Geographic. And you spoke there about being an immigrant. How do you think that your background has sort of shaped and influenced your role at National Geographic in terms of what you want to achieve there? Has it shaped anything that you do? Um, I I think certainly. I think, you know, being uh, of mixed heritage, I think Christian, Armenian and Jewish, I um, have grown uh, 
experiencing many painful stories of marginalization, disenfranchisement, and actually direct discrimination sometimes. I think that's why sort of diversity mm. and inclusion is one of my passions. And I am very involved across different parts of the organization, mm -hmm. now part of a Disney Media and Entertainment Division, DNI Council. Uh, where I work with people who have real commitment in stepping up for a just and diverse workplace, uh, changing certain unfair practices that uh, inhibited so many to feel proud of what they do and allow people to become their most creative selves and be successful. I think uh, one of the things that I experienced growing up, uh, it's, it's kind of remarkable that I've seen my people, people that I identify with being discriminated, but I also saw my people doing to, it to other people, and that equally made me very shocked. Having said that, I, I, I'm keenly aware that one of the reasons I was able to succeed despite difficulties is largely because I am a white mm -hmm. person. And mm. I think um, moving through life and my career, I've been trying to play a little part in fostering the culture of respect, regardless of your skin color, religion, gender identification, etc. Sure, because there's a, there's a mentorship program, isn't there, for photographers? Is that right, that you've been working on? Yeah, it's actually a big initiative by our editorial team. Uh, the mentorship program is called The Storytellers of Tomorrow. And uh, it's essentially geared to uh, diversifying our base of photographers to ensure that uh, the, the stories we tell are diverse from different angles and bring different perspective. So uh, the mm, program, mm. Uh, we, we have the Storytellers of Tomorrow membership program. We also have a residency program that is also geared towards expanding representation and bringing more inclusive content in National Geographic. I want to talk to you about your other, sort of other areas of, of focus, your other passions. I know you've spoken about localising US content to best serve increasing international audiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we uh, continue to expand our global storytelling at uh, National Geographic magazine. Uh, we are uh, bringing a lot of our local language content. So uh, while most of our content travels very well and universal science stories bring a lot of global alignment, we also do, through our licensing partners, a lot of local content. So about 25% of the content that we create is locally created by our mm -hmm. hubs, by our, mm -hmm. our editorial hubs. And uh, we increasingly are leveraging more and more of that content uh, for our digital publishing. We publish uh, many times per day on our website. Uh, and so we bring the content to social mm -hmm. media as well. You know, we have two wonderful examples where we had the reverse licensing. For example, our National Geographic History magazine that was launched by our Spanish partner in 2003 mm. in Spain. In 2012-2013, we brought it back and translated mm. it back into English. And now it's one of our growing uh, subscription magazines, both in print and digitally. Mm. So it's a great success story. The same thing, we uh, sort of now have a agreement with uh, APL Media in UK for travel content. They essentially supply 
all of our travel content for our global publications. And they publish about 14 editions uh, per year, including travel content, as well as food, uh, culinary journeys, and variety of other exciting uh, travel content across multiple platforms. So we're really, what we're doing now is we're transforming our local language partnerships from a straightforward licensing oh. model to more of a content partnership in some markets. This is just further enriching the slew of content that is available for our global audiences today. So you also mentioned Disney. Now, I know that two years ago, Nat Geo joined forces with Disney. And Disney now owns 73%. Is that right? Yeah, it was uh, basically in, in 2019, there were six big motion picture studios Disney, Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony, Fox, and Paramount. And in at that time, uh, they were reduced to five when Fox was basically acquired. Majority of Fox was acquired by Disney. Yeah. It was a partial merger. At that time, Disney purchased not only the library of uh, films and TV shows from 21 Century Fox, but also National Geographic, National Geographic cable channels and all of the NG commercial assets. At that time, we were already in three-year partnership with Fox. The JV was between National Geographic Society, the 132-year-old at that time nonprofit, and uh, 21 Century Fox. Mm -hmm. And the mission of the JV was to bring uh, to the world mm -hmm. all of the premium science content that National Geographic explorers do across the world, bring it across significant portfolio of media assets uh, for multi-platform publishing, for our TV, for expeditions, live events, uh, consumer products, and our um, storytelling. So... Uh, essentially, in uh, spring of 2019, Disney stepped into the shoes of 21 Century Fox, and the JV is now between Walt Disney Company and National Geographic. Uh, you are correct, 73% Disney, 27% uh, Nat Geo Society, which is a nonprofit, and uh, the 27% that comes back to nonprofit uh, is funding the work in the areas of science, mm -hmm. exploration, conservation, uh, education and the grants that society gives around the world for um, exploration and education. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's a quite a unique mm -hmm. construct. It's a very unique partnership that creates what we call a virtuous cycle of storytelling and exploration. So explorers work in the uh, in different parts of the world. They break scientific discoveries and it's channeled through the vast portfolio of National Geographic partners, mm. the JV uh, partner of society to sort of become the megaphone of the storytelling by the explorers. Sure, I was just wondering, I'm just curious to know, because obviously how does it work teaming a nonprofit with such a, a big corporate brand? I was wondering how, how that's gone. I can imagine had to be any of the teething problems. Do do you feel like the direction of Nat Geo has had to change? Have there been any yeah any kind of changes as a result of this of this merger? Well, look, uh, mergers and acquisitions, the processes uh, can be traumatic and can be chaotic, but they they, they are hmm. by nature, if, especially if you're joining such very big brands, Disney and National Geographic, for example. Mm, uh, however, yeah, yeah. they also can be exhilarating, and I think that has been my experience that. Uh, it's been incredible process. It made me get out of my comfort zone many times, 
But at、mm. the same time, it helped me retool myself. You know, retaining my values and convictions.、Uh, uh, you know, I, I stand for science. I have background in environmental science. I love what National Geographic Society、mm. does, but I also see the value、mm-hmm. of expanding、uh, the. Uh, storytelling through incredible portfolio and the, through incredible storytelling machine that Disney will allow us to do, and I think one of the things that I also wanted to say that when Disney buys brands, they very much understand that the the the, the what makes that brand successful are those key attributes of the brand. Right, and they are、uh, very, very respectful、mm-hmm. to the fans of the brand who have almost that chemical reaction. Like in our case, in National Geographic,、mm-hmm. we have global fanhood around the world. And while、um, you know, of course, they want to balance the heritage, they also with innovation, they want to modernize the brand. But what is very uncompromising、mm. with Disney is that the essence of the brand stays the same. There is just absolutely no change in the key attributes、mm. of, of of our brand, and we've seen that in the two years that we've been working with、mm. Disney. It's it's an incredible company. Nat Geo has been inspiring、mm. the explorer in everyone for almost hundred thirty four years through our groundbreaking storytelling. Through scientists, through incredible photographers and filmmakers, Nagio gives also Disney a, a kind of a new way to talk about, you know, to to be in the、uh, nonfiction world to capture the nonfiction audiences as well. I mean, traditionally, when one thinks of National Geographic, one thinks of the magazine. Certainly, what I think of. How important is the magazine to you now? What percentage of it is magazine versus the digital edition and versus the sort of The, you know the, the TV documentaries we see. How does that kind of split work?、Yeah. So when we talk about magazine today, what we really mean is a spectrum of multi-platform, visually driven content that is guided by the same journalistic excellence that has been guiding the traditional magazine. Uh, the magazine,、uh, the print magazine, continues to be quite resilient. But what is also happening in our company is that we have de-risked our business essentially by creating a very vibrant digital ecosystem for our journalistic content. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we publish multiple times per day. We have immersive podcast series、uh, that are derived from our contributors to the magazine, to the sort of the magazine mm-hmm. media mm-hmm. ecosystem. And we have、uh, today we have the largest social media footprint of all consumer brands with two hundred million followers on Instagram alone. We're the largest media brand on Instagram wow. today. Wow. So you know there's a incredible engagement、uh, across the board. From traditional magazine, where we have a lot of loyal readers, to our podcast. So you know, we really evolved into a very much of a data-driven company.、Mm-hmm. We use data models to score our prospects, lapsed users, most engaged subscribers. And we, you know,、uh, follow them across their entire journey from when we、uh, bring them from unknown to known to our email wall when we acquire their email and open up the world of National Geographic through newsletters, through podcasts, through、uh, daily journalism. 
Uh, we also, at some point, lead them to a paywall. Uh, after uh, four articles, uh, you now come to a space where you need to unlock additional premium content mm-hmm. that is uh, incredibly important to us to look at Nagio magazine as the full spectrum of the journalistic offerings that we have. Because I know, am I right that in terms of subscribers, in the in the sort of late eighties, you had around ten million subscribers, and now you've got around three point five million globally. When we're talking these figures, is that for the magazine, or are we talking digital subscribers as well? This is a total. Uh, this is a total circulation for us globally, uh, about three point six million. What is interesting for us is that our entry points uh, are multiple. As I said, some people are coming in through podcasts, some people coming in from National Geographic television that is now available not only uh, through cable, but also through Disney Plus. Sure. So can you just talk us through Nat Geo's media strategy? Our uh, Nat Geo magazine media strategy today is consumer-led digital subscription acquisition and retention strategy, where we're really transforming from transaction focus to managing the entire consumer lifecycle. The tech innovation and re-architecture of the site we implemented in the last few years led to significant improvements in search engine optimization, organic traffic, and most importantly, much deeper engagement with the storytelling. And actually, NG has always been at the forefront of innovation and discovery, including tech innovation, from the very early days uh, of photography in early 20th century. Uh, For example, a fun fact, in 1920, the first color lab in American publishing was built at Nat Geo Society. And uh, at that time, we were a very early adopter of uh, autochrome uh, technology, which is a unique method of capturing color in photography that results in sort of luminous, dreamlike pictures, somewhat reminiscent of Impressionist paintings. And I think it's remarkable to see how the tradition continues after you know almost 134 years. While the magazine won seven national magazine awards in the last seven years, uh, was three-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. We also won two Webby Media Company of the Year awards um, honoring excellence in digital space and innovation. Wow. But what I would like to say about digital is that there is a lot of room to grow, right? There is yeah. a very large addressable market for high quality paid digital content in English. And actually, recently, I, I was uh, I was listening to uh, an interview with New York Times CEO Meredith Kopit-Levian, and she said something very interesting, that today there is one billion people who read high quality digital journalism, right? Mm -hmm. At least 100 million of those people are willing to pay for it. So that leaves a lot of room for us, the publishers, who produce high quality journalism to meet that demand. So if the preferences of our consumers who are willing to pay are are there, we're going to meet them where they are. And I think that is why we are expanding our storytelling across multiple platforms because we we have that demand. And I think that that, that is a very hopeful message that, you know, addressable audience is large as long as we continue producing high quality uncompromising storytelling, the demand will continue to grow, especially if we provide that storytelling with the specificity that is unique, for example, to, to our brand. When we talk about ranges of stories, 
that inspire people to support the planet, to inspire people to care about the planet and environment. It's very specific to National Geographic. And, um, you know, people come to us for that very specific information. I also want to talk to you about your appointment as FIPS chair. In FIPS, it's nearly a 100-year history. You are the first female chair, about time too. And I wanted to know really why you take on this role and what you hope to bring to FIP. Nat Geo has been a part of FIP for over 25 years. In fact, uh, we credit FIP with a lot of Nat Geo's success through our flagship events, through various networking opportunities. We met most of our international partners. And the other aspect of it is that the industry colleagues, like, for sure. example, the late George Green, who was at one point the publisher of New Yorker, and then, of course, the head of international for Hearst, he was especially helpful to National Geographic in so many different ways. The industry overall sort of regards him as the forefather of the licensing business sure. in publishing, and he certainly taught National Geographic and me personally very generously his trade introduced us to many different contacts. Specifically, uh, Hearst has for years uh, had an incredible relationship with Transmedia in China, who George introduced us to, and we have been lucky to have them as a partner for, you know, close to 20 years now as well. So yeah, uh, I'm very excited to work with James Hughes, our CEO and president yeah. and the board. And of course, uh, being the first woman appointed as chair of FIP in its 100-year history is pretty cool. But I think that just emphasizes how much work has to be done to both uh, achieve gender balance and equitably represent uh, other underrepresented voices. So I think, you know, we, we are a global organization. We are um, reaching more than 20,000 media professionals around the world. We have 135 media associations that are part of our network. And we're the only magazine media association that is assisting its members to evolve traditional businesses to uh, today's environment. We are finding, of course, that uh, we have been sort of somewhat disproportionately yeah. serving European and US media uh, organizations. So, uh, uh, you know, a lot of our members are from those geographies. So a lot of work has to be done in terms of stepping up uh, our real commitment in truly be helpful to members from other regions and other countries. And this is exactly what I'm committed in doing. And James Hughes and I are looking very closely at four areas specifically as it relates to representation, both on the board, our contributors, speakers at our events. We're looking at community engagement, uh, reaching out to various parts of the world that you know we don't have representation from. We are also very conscious that the content that we create across all of the value chains, be it on our website, be it through our events, also has to be relevant to communities outside yeah. of English-speaking world and European continent. So that is also what we're looking at. And Overall, the fourth area is the culture of the organization. And I think um, as we look at opportunities and what I want to achieve in the next uh, two years, Africa and Middle East is where we really need to be a lot stronger uh, in terms of representation. Sure. Actually, just about two weeks ago, there was a great piece in The Guardian about just 
incredible geopolitical impact that African continent continues to have on the world. And that is not only in terms of population, even though by 2050, a quarter of the world's people will be African, but how critical the continent is overall in geopolitical impact, global trade, migration, almost every aspect of uh, daily life. And despite all of that, Africa continues to remain marginalized in most Western media. So I think when we're looking at opportunities, Middle East and Africa is the where we will be sort of recruiting a lot of our members. And I'm talking also about board positions, sort of positions of power. Uh, we are talking actually in that region about quite a vibrant media landscape that is now characterized by a lot of digital innovation. And I think we want to bring that innovation to the rest of the world, to the rest of our members. You know, there is a very vibrant OTT, digital entertainment environment in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. There's a fantastic Pan-Arabic content uh, streaming service and a lot of innovation there. It's called Shahid Gaming, Digital Music. And all of that is growing at accelerated pace. And all of these changes, uh, of course, in consumer behavior require local media companies in the region to consider new digital business models, such as subscriptions, leveraging direct relationship with consumers, modernizing and monetizing the content. And I think that's where FIP comes in, because mm-hmm. that is our role is to assist our members to evolve traditional business models to meet the demands of today. And I think that is where we can have a lot of interesting encounters, uh, learn a lot, and also bring some of our expertise as well. Talking about embracing innovation, there's two buzzwords at the moment. I mean, you know, they've been around a while, but they're particularly hitting headlines, which is metaverse and NFTs. And I was curious to know your take on them. Metaverse, first of all, what your thoughts about what that can bring to publishing? Uh, I think when we are uh, looking at that space, uh, the whole Web3 space or the metaverse, which is really the new version of internet Mm, mm. where users can own a Mm. chunk of that space, that whole um, area is sparking a lot of interest, a lot of hope, but also a lot of skepticism, mm, as you know. Mm. So we, uh, as National Geographic, are very cautiously and thoughtfully uh, examining opportunities in that area. Uh, for National Geographic specifically, uh, the environmental impact of uh, producing NFTs, of minting NFTs, is front and center to our discovery process in Mm -hmm, that area mm -hmm. because our brand stands for sustainability and uh, the current infrastructure although it's evolving but the current infrastructure incentivizes competition among miners which requires a significant amount of energy to produce an nft yeah yeah sure Uh, therefore we are very very uh cautiously looking at that area before we make any uh partnerships with the platforms i mean there's huge scope isn't there National Geographic is synonymous with your photography, with your with your incredible images. So you feel like there's huge scope there to make money. So this is something you're looking into, you're saying? Yes, that- yes, absolutely, absolutely. We are exclusively looking at possible marketplaces that uh, operate 
on a, um, it's called a level two blockchain, which uh, uses an algorithm called proof of stake, which is dramatically reducing the carbon emissions from minting. So we're looking at those uh, marketplaces that are already working in that new level two blockchain. Those that are already working in Ethereum 2, which launched last year. And there are many different ways. I mean, I'm hearing that there's a potential for for programmatically building uh, in carbon offsets from minting NFTs. So uh, certainly before National Geographic specifically moves into that area, we will be uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very carefully examining all of the claims of the platforms that relate to their renewable energy credits, carbon offsets, and truly verify by third parties Mm -hmm. that it's indeed the Mm -hmm. case. I just wanted to kind of step back a moment and say why I... I'm personally such a curious observer and now professional discoverer of that space. You know, the essentially over the last 30 years of internet, we as media professionals declared in some way that there is no marginal cost to paper print and distribution. So we made a lot of our content available for free on internet, right? And in some way are very much implicated in unraveling of the publishing business as we know. Mm -hmm. As we are looking now in the last 10 or 12 years, we're kind of trying to step back and reclaim that space, sort of reteach people that every piece of content has value and enormous investment that goes into it. As, and, and as I'm looking at the space and discussions in NFTs, I think NFTs have a promising premise in that area because yeah. every original piece of art or uh, a 3D figurine or uh, a piece of video that you purchase, you own. And by function of a smart contract that is attached uh, to the NFT, you essentially have a verified proof of ownership and provenance, and you also kind of become an investor. Not only you become sort of an owner, you yeah. invest. You become an investor uh, as the value uh, can be increased. So I think, you know, as um, we look at this space where in the last 30 years, a lot of piracy Uh, proliferated a lot Mm -hmm. of stealing of Mm -hmm. pictures yes we are in photography I I work with a lot of esteemed National Geographic photographers and it pains me because a lot of the value general value has been eroded in the last 30 years and in many ways as 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 long as we figure out in in that Mm. geo's case and as responsible citizens all of the environmental consequences and we find a method that allows us to produce nfts in a way that doesn't increase carbon emissions then this could be a promising space for creators because the value for content will be increasing. Sure, but there are definitely a lot of copyright issues, aren't there? I mean, it's been written about a lot. There's been a lot of problems. There's Miramax lawsuit against Tarantino. There's Nike suing over NFT images. Hermes is suing. There are copyright issues and it's obviously complicated because when copyright laws were created, the digital world didn't exist. NFT certainly didn't exist. And so there's it's saying, do current copyright laws, do they even offer any protection? Who does ownership of the image all these issues so is this something that you're aware of that is this something that you're working on is it is it a concern absolutely i mean we uh work with you know contributors uh from all over the world some of them are um 
responsible for some of the most iconic photos that have graced mm, the pages mm, of National Geographic mm. and that through National Geographic and through our partnership with those creators were brought to the world. So we're incredibly respectful to our contributors and we want to ensure that the value of their work is respected and that is elevated. So we that that is why I started uh, this whole uh, discussion of NFTs from a, a very cautious and thoughtful position because mm-hmm. uh, while environmental aspect of it is very important, it is very important for us that our uh, community of creators is well compensated in everything we do and that the value of their work continues to grow. So absolutely. Do you own the copyright of the image? Like I know that as a journalist, if I write, if I write an article for someone, they, ha- you know, I have no ownership over that article. I'm, I'm paid for it once and that's it. If they decided to make an NFT, not that likely, out of one of my articles and they make loads of money of it, I have no rights over that because when I, because when I write for them, I'm signing over the rights to, to my work. Is that the same with your photography? So all, all the, you know, the, this 135-year-old archive you've got, I'm assuming that Nat Geo owns all the copyrights to those images, so you can kind of do what you want with them, or is that not the case? No, it's not the case. Uh, we would never do... Again, I, I would emphasize the respect to our creators. We own mm. some of the photography, and, you know, our archive, our physical archive is 14 million images. Uh, our wow. digital archive is ever-growing, and it's over 64 million images right now. We uh, yeah. most of our photographers retain their copyright. So I'm very proud to say that we have incredible relationship with our photographers. We have a lot of rights to use and reuse the photos. We own some of the photography, sure, sure. but most of our photography and the copyright is retained by our creators. And we're very proud of the association and the work with these uh, incredible, talented creators. Sure. So if, for example, there's one of your really iconic images, you want to make an NFT of it, you would have to collab- collaborate with the photographer absolutely there will be there always will be a collaboration because it's not just about um you know putting a digital photography on web3 in that new space and minting is an nft uh each nft has to come with uh, sustained benefits to the owner so there's so many interesting things that we could do in collaboration with photographer yeah, be sure. it additional yeah, sure. unlocked value sure. when um, uh, the owner meets photographer whether in metaverse or in real life there is some other component of the relationship there is access yeah. to additional content from the creator or from national geographic so there is so much more than one image uh, although this is an incredible opportunity, I think, for our creators to uh, start uh, increasing once again the value yeah. of the incredible resource that they have and incredible photography that they have graced the pages of National Geographic with. Yeah, and also lots of revenue possibilities for publishers, right? I mean, not just in terms of minting content, but also creating added value for subscribers and increasing engagement. Yeah. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens in this space, but potentially exciting times ahead. Yeah. Also, exciting times at FIP with you as our first female chair. We are really looking forward to working with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charlotte. If I could give a a, a little shout out, we have... Uh, our flagship event, our flagship FIP event, World Magazine Congress, that is happening for the first time in two years in person, uh, June 
7th to 9th in Cascais, Portugal. We have great speaker lineup and I really hope that uh, a lot of people will join us. It's going to be an exciting event. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well done for giving it a plug. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Thank you very much. So that's it for episode four of Media Unscripted. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation with Yulia and her interesting insights into the global brand that is National Geographic. Next time, we'll be chatting to Jason Kint, the CEO of Digital Content Next. DCN is FIP's US cousin and the Media Trade Association serves high quality digital content companies, including the New York Times, Condé Nast, ESPN, Vox, Politico and Insider. Jason is a 25-year veteran of the digital media industry, having led the evolution of CBS Sports into a multi-platform brand. Prior to that, Jason worked in various executive roles, launching and leading all of the Times Mirror magazine's flagship websites. As always, thank you for listening and thank you to our sponsor, Press Readers. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to like and subscribe.